Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and this week I'm joined in the studio by a man who can herd his goats wherever he wants on the island of Fiji. It's the gold medal winning coach, uh, corporate speaker and consultant to French rugby and UK sport. It's Ben Ryan. Hello, Ben. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Okay, well, interesting. We're getting to the business end of the season. The Premiership final will be between... Exeter and Saracens, and the Pro 14 final will be between Leinster and Scarlets. Just before England fly off to South Africa for what's a difficult tour, given the circumstances and context in which it now takes place, they've lost Paul Gusted, their defence coach, because he is taking over as director of rugby or head coach at Quinns. Ben, I understand that um, you were also interviewed for... The, the same job, is that right? Yeah, that is right. Um, and it, it, yep, and uh, had I think I had three interviews, and uh, you know, got the call on Saturday morning or Friday morning actually, just to say that Paul had got the nod in front of me, and uh, yeah, I, I'm I was happy with the process. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, all the very best of Paul. He's an awesome bloke, and he'll do really well. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm not sure I would have been <laughs> as magnanimous <laughs> as you in the. Uh, in the circumstances, but I mean, obviously, Quinns is a club that's close to my heart because I was captain mm. there. And frankly, they need a job doing, don't they? Yeah, they do. And you know, when I started to start, when I started the process, you, you obviously start delving into things. You contact people and find out what the, the story is, and it, and and yes, they do. They need it off as much off the field as much as on the field. But the good news is that you know, if they create the right environment, they've got the players. Um, and the only way. It, is up, and they, they, there's there's lots of things I, I think they can do to get themselves right at the top of the table pretty quickly. So you know, like all things, you know, it's uh, alignment that they need, and they haven't got that at the moment. But mm. but this whole process for them has unearthed a lot of things. And as sort of I've talked about publicly, when, whenever any any club or any any program doesn't doesn't perform, it's not normally just one thing. It's like a it's like a plane crashing. It's it's pilot and co-pilot haven't worked together. It's it's delay because of rain. It's it's um it's a flashing light that's getting obscured and you're losing altitude. It's mm-hmm. happened to Quinns over the last five or six years, and it's come home to roost now. And now they're having to face up to it all. Well, of course, this has knock-on effects for England because they go to South Africa with no permanent attack coach. I think they've got one just for the tour, and now they've no defence coach now. This short out of a World Cup, and whilst it does seem, in terms of the calendar, still quite a way away, in terms of the number of games, it's not that far away, and that time will go very quickly. So how much of an effect do you think it will have on their preparation? It's hard to say. I mean, maybe Eddie's coming round to my philosophy of keeping everything simple. <laughs> He's losing all the coaches and letting them get on with things. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad way. The, the players might actually respond I don't quite think positively. Pla- whatever. I don't think it was planned, <laughs> even if it's right. What a shame. Um, so there's going to be there's going to be some upheaval. But at the end of the day, you know that the, they've you know Paul will have left the defence in in decent shape, and they'll bring someone in. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the way that he's had some of his appointments, uh, he'll probably go overseas again and not look at home. But mm. but also then we've got all this, you know, you've got this, the, the question that why, why would someone say some of the guys that are coaching Exeter that are obviously doing a brilliant job or maybe Alex at Saracens leaving somewhere that's successful, that's given them lots of day-to-day contact with the players and, and coaching. Because and they, it's England and it's a World Cup and that yeah. is a very... Tempting prospect. I mean, they can always go back to club rugby. They can't guarantee 
that, that in the future things will be right for them to go to England. Mm, it's I know I, I know where you're coming from. I think if I were if you're looking at it sometimes, and I it is England and it is a World Cup. But if you for one moment perhaps like the coaches look beyond the ego of saying that they're an international coach and all of that stuff they're actually getting huge amounts of satisfaction and value out of their day-to-day coaching in the clubs. And, and you know, weirdly, I actually, I've seen that in America in the NBA, coaches that are, are working at universities and have options to go to franchises and go and, and follow the dream. They just don't want to because mm. of the job satisfaction and, and the life that they've got. So I, I get that. But ultimately, they are going to attract some fabulous candidates. And, you know, it is a long time away still. And I'm sure they'll they'll write the the right with the ship in time. Well, Steve Hansen, the All Blacks head coach, he's been stirring the pot by announcing that Brad Shields, who is going to tour with England in South Africa, would probably have been an All Black this year. Now, knowing the way that they work, I'm quite sure there's some devilment in this, and yeah. I'm quite sure that uh, it's just sticking, you know, a little bit of a knife in just to twist it and say, look, mate, you've made the wrong decision. Yeah, Pointless t- thing. Uh, having said that, the converse side of it is, for England, if they are going to have available someone who the head coach of the All Blacks has confirmed would have been an All Black, then you can't doubt his quality, can you? No, that's true. You know, it's a bit like your girlfriend dumping you and you go and move on and with someone else and then she rings you up and says you, she wants you back. And, uh, and, and, and she's won the lottery, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is what it is, and and like you say, if if this isn't just mind games, and and there might be an element of that, and England have got in their squad a, a player that would have been an All Black, then they've got obviously a quality operator. You know, I haven't watched him play in the, in Super Rugby. He's had some outstanding games, not recently, um, I might add, but um, certainly a few months ago. So you know, if you pick on form, you might not have made the England squad in the last few games, but um, they've obviously had a plan in place for a while now to bring him across and he's eligible. So, you know, ultimately, uh, coaches make these decisions and then they they will, that you know, that it will depend on how, how how this player, how Brad plays on and whether they've made the good a good. No, I, don't, I don't think you can doubt his quality. No. The New Zealand conference in Super Rugby is very, very strong. Keynes are a strong team. He's been captain, he's been mm. part of their setup for a while. And that requires a certain amount, especially in the back row, which is very competitive all over New Zealand, uh, a certain amount of ability and skill. The question for me is not can he play, is where he'll play. Yeah, and, and I still think, you know, that mix of the back row for England isn't necessarily, they haven't sorted that, a bit like they haven't sorted 10-12 yet. So um, they've got three test matches against South Africa where he might be able to shuffle the pack a little bit. Um, and then going back to, you're right about, you know, the, the strength and depth of the All Blacks, but they have had a lot of back row injuries and it is the end of a super rugby season where mm. players get rested and don't go on tour. So whether Brad Shields would have been in that selection mix if they were coming into World Cup and everyone was fit, I, I'm not I'm not sure. It's another opportunity, isn't it? And, it, and we'll see, see how he goes. And, you know, there's there's one or two other English players that are returning to full fitness like Billy Vunapola. So it's getting better. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about... People who might play on tour, people who want one player who will not be playing, obviously because he's not going, is Chris Ashton. But England are facing the Barbarians on Sunday and he's been announced as a Barbarian, which will be quite uh, a delicious prospect for him in one sense. You have to say about Ashton, whatever has been written and said about him, he continues to score tries. I mean, he's created records now, first season over there. All right, he did go to a very good team. He left a very good team. And I've always felt with him that these supposed defects in his defence, whilst they are there and not as big as people have said, and irrespective of that, what he has brought positively far outweighs any small defensive glitches that he has. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and I've watched him play quite a lot this season. Um Mainly because I'm, you know, I'm number one fan of the Josh Tuisova uh, fan club that plays on the other wing at Toulon, who's also playing for the Barbarians next weekend. And um, the, the the thing with Chris is that he scores tries and he pops up and his work rate's phenomenal as as a back three player. He's and sco- no other back three player that I've seen England qualified runs the same support lines as him. 
he's very clever on those lines, isn't he? He picks up those those loose passes and he gets on the edges of offloads and edges of defenders. You know, he played well in the um, in the top fourteen quarter final at the weekend. Scored a try and then unfortunately dropped the ball a couple of times at the end, which meant Lyon went through on the uh, on the on the away rule. I think it was in the, that quarter final, which bundled Toulon out. But he's a very good player. He's absolutely international class at the moment. And it is weird when you think there's a player in the squad that hasn't stepped foot on English soil that's playing in South Africa. And then we've got somebody that would be dying to play and put on that shirt again that's being left out. It's, um, it doesn't sit that well. Well, Eddie Jones has said that he feels Denny Solomona is close to an England uh, tour start. I suppose that depends on whether he behaves himself for long enough to, to qualify and get uh, you know on the field. Undoubtedly has had some of those problems. But again, another winger with a league background and because of that has certain skill sets uh, which aren't always there with uh, rugby union players. And again, devastating finisher. Yeah, no, he is good. I mean, the, 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 a player there that that I really like that I've watched him play since he was sort of 15 or 16 is Nathan Earl uh, that's making the move from Saracens to Harlequins after the tour. Um, and he's a young kid that's that I think has got outstanding ability and for whatever reason hasn't quite fulfilled that up until now. But he's obviously showing that in, in some respect that he's in this England squad that's going to tour South Africa. So there's there are those players that are on the edge of really pushing forward and ha- but yet haven't quite done that yet. And then you have a look at Chris and like you say, he's... Um, He's probably playing better than all of them at the moment. So this weekend at the Barbarians game is going to be fascinating to see what sort of side England put out and see who, see who's facing them because that backline the Barbarians have have got has got some serious power. And just want to announce some great news for Tom Youngs and his wife Tiffany. It's been announced that she's in remission following a four-year battle with cancer. And to hear from Tiffany herself and how the Youngs family have been coping with the cancer. You'll remember that Ben uh, didn't tour with the British Lions because he wanted to support uh, the couple. You can listen to the backstory with Claire Mutima and Susie Coulson. To start off with, I was like, why me? I was so, I wasn't upset that I'd been diagnosed. I was just so angry. I was like, why me? And then I was like, but why not me? Why should somebody else have to go through it? And Tom was very good. And it was very difficult because obviously he was training every day. It wasn't like he was in a normal nine to five job. So he was like, I just want two weeks off. He couldn't do that. If not, he'd have been dropped and um, and he just carried on. And the good thing for Tom is that he went in and if he was having a bad day, he could basically destroy the scrum machine or do whatever and just, you know, use an object, not a person at the club to take that anger and stuff out. But he was, yeah, he was apt. I wouldn't have been able to do it without him. And the in-depth interview will be out Tuesday morning. So subscribe now and make sure you don't miss it. It will be... A heartwarming tale, and let's hope that that cancer stays mm. in remission for both of them. The playoff semi-finals turned out to be fairly one spot, not fairly, absolutely one-sided affairs. I thought that the way Saracens came out at Wasps was absolutely first-rate. And whilst a lot of Wasps fans were disappointed uh, in some of their defensive aspects. What Saracens got absolutely right, and what I am now more than ever convinced is the key to the game as we are, is they managed to vary where they took the ball into contact, which runners took it in, what angles, what options they had inside and out to pass just before the contact or drag the ball back to looping runners, which meant defenders either had to commit and they make, if you make a mistake, then there are gaps elsewhere. Or they try and jockey positions, and that means they don't get a full hit on. But either way, they're getting over the gain line from the initial contact. And if they're good enough to clear, the support players are in the right positions, gets faster and faster, and eventually you just can't cope. They did that. Exeter didn't do it with the same amount of variation, but they were so accurate in the way that they took the ball into contact and cleared it that I'm, I mean, I've never seen a stat at half-time which says one side has had over 90% possession in Terry. I've never seen that. And whilst they didn't score as many tries because they were against the wind as they might have done, you know, Newcastle would just shut out the game. And obviously, if you have little ball, 
the temptation is, and it was with Newcastle, as soon as we get some, we've got to do something with it straight away. And it rarely works, and then you just turn the ball over and the whole process starts again. All I would say is watching 20 or 30 phases that don't result in a line break, whilst you can marvel at it technically, if you're a disinterested viewer or fan, it, frankly, it's not that interesting. Uh, uh, look, you've summed it up. I don't really need to add anything. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with all your sentiment. And you're right, Saracens have nice variation in where they put their point of attack and then defenders can't build up momentum or tempo or put line speed on it. And they get onto edges of, of the players and then they, and they know where they're going. So they make sure that they keep getting ball after ball after ball and it's incessant. And that onslaught eventually means that they're going to score points. And the same with Exeter and they're so good at the breakdown. And they target that brilliantly, and it means that they just keep getting possession. I find it, I find it boring. I, I don't, you know, I think there's still not enough ingenuity around what we're trying to do. But the game, unfortunately, has has created this with the way that the laws are being, of being allowed to be played, and and some laws that are in the book that just get avoided and just get ignored around collapsing rucks and coming off your feet. But um, it is what it is, and now we're going to have two teams in the final. Um, that are going to have long phases of possession. Uh, it's going to be a bit like US football and the drives that you get. And if you score off all of each of those, well, it, drives... be, it will be like this is what happens when you get two teams who are equally adept at doing it. You get a final like the European Champions final, mm. where Leinster mm. and Racing both did this for long periods. They couldn't breach the defence. They didn't have that extra factor, and it ended up just being penalties. And whilst it was tense because the score, you know, was close for the whole game, the fact is that in terms of um, excitement and so on, uh, and as I say, you know, technically you can marvel at it, and we do because, you know, we hope we're aficionados of the technical aspects of the game. It's actually, not, and that's what happens. And under the present laws, it's, it's difficult to understand what more you can do about it, because when you start to tinker around with laws, there are unintended consequences always. And whether, mm. well, I don't know. What, what about, what about uh, getting rid of two players and having just six possessions and, uh, and then having non-contested scores? Oh, that's a rugby league. <laughs> We've already got one game like yeah. that, and it works very well. Yeah, see, this is the, <laughs> this is the issue that, that they don't necessarily see the ripple effect. And if their end goal was to get more ball in play, um, oh, they've done that. Yeah, they have done that, and so that you know there'll be there'll be some backslapping going on. But it depends whether that ball in play is doing anything that's that's turning our heads. And it and at the moment it isn't. Now look, you, you know, sometimes when you get to big games in whatever sport, you get dull finals, and we saw that in the FA Cup at the weekend. You know, it was a bore fest. So it's not necessarily down not if to you're the a Chelsea laws. fan like me. Marvelous, <laughs> crikey! That, that, uh, <laughs> that was um, anyway. So now we've got the, the top two teams in the Prem that are in the final and the top two teams in the Pro 14 as well. So we have got what we want, what I guess is deserved. But I really hope that somehow something can happen in these games where we can see it flow a little bit more, where we're not looking at the bottom of the screen and going, this is 40 phases now and they've made 40 metres upfield um, because this isn't the game that I certainly grew up playing. Well, what I wrote was that you either have to have a mistake made or one side just has more creative and game-winning players. Mm. And again, in the two finals, you've got Saracens and Scarlets, who I would say have that sort of X factor. But if they can manage to bring it to the fore, because Leinster and Exeter, bar none in their respective leagues, are the most accurate sides around. And when we're talking about accuracy, people don't necessarily know what that means. What that means is getting the runners in the right position, getting the support players in quick enough to the breakdown so that they can properly clear instantly. The ball's not slowed down. They don't have these situations where one player is too late, so they're left on their own. Or even if they get there, they're only half clear, so they're trying to then wrestle mm. one of the guys over. And that's what we're talking about when we say accuracy, and what that produces is successive possessions. Yeah, it does, and and you know there's a predictability about it. But the best sides, like you say, are accurate. They get the they get take the right options at the right times. But 
I think, you know, that there's not enough, you know, and I'm obviously a, a big fan of, of offloading, but dynamic mini malls where we're trying to stay on our feet and not have too many players on the floor all the time, uh, where that creates that momentum. There are There is opportunities for coaches to to change the dynamic within the laws. But at the moment, you know, the top teams in the in the top leagues and number one team in the world are playing multi-phase ruck-based games and they're not looking to stay up and they're not looking to push things and try and be a bit more risky in what they're doing in attack and going with going with these multi-phase attacks that are a lot easier as a coach to to contain, to, to look after as a coach. You can almost... You know, you can coach that, whereas some of the stuff we're talking about, which is around offloads, lines of running, more support-based stuff, a bit more dynamic, you know, there is more element of player empowerment in that, and coaches don't necessarily like that. They like to control things. They like to know where we're supposed to be going and what we're supposed to do, which is so it's so much nearer to what the NFL do, which is this big, thick playbook, and, and it goes back to my, what I think, thicker playbooks equal thicker players, and, <laughs> and, and we need to try to stop that. But it's not going that way at the moment. Well, let's uh, just switch our attention to the Pro 14. Very pleased to say we can speak to Reggie Corrigan, the former Leinster and Ireland prop, who is a regular contributor to this podcast. Hello, Reggie. Hey, Brian. How are you? I'm okay. I'm here with uh, with Ben Ryan. We're just talking about the fact that uh, you've got in the Premiership and Pro 14 finals probably the two best teams, you know, in their respective competitions. But that given the way in which certainly Leinster and Exeter play, we'll concentrate on Leinster for the time being, and the accuracy with which they keep the ball, you could have a final that has lots of 30-phase plays, but not many tries. Yeah, and I think the way both sets of defences are, are line, lined up as well, I think that could easily be the case. Um, certainly... Leinster seemed to have a bit of a problem breaking down Munster at the weekend in, in a lot of areas, mm. in particular, you know, in, in the try area. And it took a kind of a, a bit of brilliance, really, in that first half from James Lowe um, to create the first try for Jack Connell. I mean, and it was it was him basically just getting the better of Simon Zebo from power, uh, sheer power twice in succession, and then a brilliant offload back inside to Conan. So you're right. I mean, defences are incredibly difficult to break down. And oppositions are not making that many errors in in both of the teams that we've mentioned, uh, both um, you know Leinster and even Scarlets when when it does come to the final that Leinster will be facing, they make very few errors. And I think that that seems to be the big difference between teams nowadays. As you look at games, it's the teams who make the fewest mistakes that win the games. And I think Munster will be kicking themselves from Saturday's performance. They lost by a point. But if you go back through that game, as they will, on video evidence, and you see the amount of errors that were strewn in that with forward passes, knock-ons, missed line-outs, they'll be kicking themselves because it was an opportunity blown because of mistakes. Hey, Reggie, Ben Ryan here. I hope you're well. Hey, Ben. Um, I'm well. So do you think some when you, when you talk about those very the top teams and their, their lack of errors, that a lot of that is down to the fact that perhaps they, they're a little bit risk-averse and that it's multi-phase and they... They won't force the offload. They won't try to do something that's slightly different that might surprise, but also w- with with that comes a risk. Yeah, I think you're not far off the mark there. I think teams are now playing the percentages a lot. I, I do think the top teams, like the Exeters, we saw Saris at the weekend as well, the top teams, uh, they practice to a level that, you know, it it's the repetition and what they're doing in practice with drills and passing and, and not knocking the ball on and, and, and dropping it and accepting those types of errors as part of the game. Uh, that's the difference. I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from. It seems to be, it, you know, the game is becoming a little boring. Teams don't really want to take this big risk and take these, uh, you know, chances that might cause, if it's a 50, 50 ball, they're not taking that risk, you know, and in case there's a knock on in case there's a turnover, and because of that, it is a bit risk-averse. But I suppose teams are looking at it from results as opposed to performance and what it looks like. So in their mind, they're thinking, why take that chance? Why be mm. risky? Why, why you know, put ourselves in a position where we may lose a game because of that? And it's hard to argue with that when you look at maybe something that Munster would have done at the weekend is take a few of those chances and not get the results. So paying one off against the other is often quite difficult. And I think you're right. It just sometimes means that games can be a little bit boring. 
Well, looking forward to the uh, final, Leinster Scarlets, Champions Cup winners against defending champions. Now, with the Scarlets, I've always felt that they do have a certain number of players that can unlock very organised defences. But for me, it will just depend in this game how much they can disrupt Leinster's multi-phase game. And they've got to also understand, which Newcastle didn't understand, that if they are um, behind in terms of possession, whatever you, you just can't run and try the killer ploy just because you get some ball and you're pleased to see it. They've still got to work through their game plan. They've still got to try and get themselves in the right areas and so on. If they can do that, then I think they've got a chance. If not, then I think whilst they may stay in touch, it tends to look very much like a Leinster win. Um, I'm not so sure if I'd agree on this occasion, Brian, because I, I, I know where you're coming from, but I watch both games in detail. Now, Grant, I thought Glasgow were poor. Um, I thought Finn Russell started off the game decently enough, but made some poor decisions after that, and then was starved of possession effectively beyond that because his forwards just couldn't get their hands on the ball. Like Johnny Gray was trying hard, and a number of other players were trying hard, but they just didn't have any possession. And I thought a lot of you know, the scores for Scarlets came from turnover ball, where they're brilliant. I thought the surface is a big factor. I think you know playing on the artificial pitch makes a big difference for, for teams like this because their speed is incredible and they can turn over ball and get two or three passes away from the contact area, find some space, they're gone and they've scored. But defensively, Glasgow were poor. They were very, very poor at the weekend and they didn't make the tackles that they needed to make at certain times. Now, that being said, I think Scarlets are playing a brand of game that will trouble Leinster in the sense that they're not afraid um, you know, to take those chances. As Ben was just talking about there, you know, in the sense that... Um, let's go for the 50-50 ball, let's go for the offload, let's play it out of the tackle, let's play it off the deck, which we don't see a lot of these days. Uh, that's something that Scarlets will do. And if you do that, it's almost impossible for a defensive team to get themselves organised quickly enough um, to get the defensive line sorted and, and get themselves in place that they can they can stop a decent attack. I mean, that's what Glasgow struggled with because the continuity from Scarlets was absolutely incredible uh, on Friday night. Now, Leinster at the weekend struggled with that a little bit. Uh, in the sense that Munster didn't even compete at the breakdown, which was a mistake, in my opinion, on their part. They should compete a little bit more at the breakdown and slow down that quick ball for Leinster and stop their uh, fastbacks getting plenty of space and creating that space. Um, they just found out and they defended. Now, it was effective and it stopped things, but ultimately it didn't win them the game. I think Scarlets will be a lot cleverer than that. I think they'll try and offload the ball and go quickly towards Leinster and Leinster will have to be I, I think they'll have to up their game and their performance a lot from what they did at the weekend against uh, Munster if they're going to beat the Scarlet's outfit so by no means is it a foregone conclusion that Leinster are going to win this, this game albeit they will have some players back I think that will make a difference such as Johnny Sexton Yeah no I agree I, th- I mean for me the key is if the Scarlet's can get their attack motoring and, and that requires them to have possession and some turnover ball which isn't going to be easy to get against Leinster and then their their attack often is around getting two very quick passes into slightly wider space, and then their line breaks are normally from either an inside offload with a secondary offload from that guy that got it, but then that the more the rarer type of offload, which is an outside offload, because that's not mm. where the defenders are filling in on the inside. And when Scarlets can get those outside offloads, which are actually pretty tricky when you're getting tackled one way and you're trying to deliver an offload the the other way, if if Scarlets can get that in the wider areas and off turn off turnover ball which are all a lot big ifs against Leinster then then things could change but um yeah I, I still you know I, I still <laughs> can't really see the game becoming anything other than multi-phase grinding down Leinster w- win in my book yeah well I, I see I, I think Leinster have to be favourites I, I don't think we can be naive enough to think that they're not going to improve their game from week to week uh, and certainly not learn from what happened uh, at the weekend against Munster. For, for example, against Munster, their first phase session, their lineup was very poor. Their scrum was under pressure until they changed their entire front row and brought on their replacement uh, international front row, which is a handy thing to be able to do. Um, you know, and, and you know, the Munster front row were tired and worn, worn out at that stage, so you'd expect the baby scrum uh, value decreased a little bit. But in the first half and up, up to the 50-minute mark, 
Munster were putting pressure on Leinster at that scrum area. Certainly in line-out, they stole a lot of ball. Mahoney was, I, I, I don't know what the stats were, but I think he got up in the air five or six times and disrupted the Leinster line-out. Now, these are things that Scarlets will look at in detail and think that they can definitely do a job on Leinster. So Leinster need to sort that first-place possession out at scrum and line-out time. But also at breakdown, James Davis is, is a genius at getting in quickly and, and slowing down ball. Uh, Shingler's not bad either, but you know, in particular Davis, and if you're slowing down what Leinster um, need, which is quick first phase possession to get out along the back line and use those backs and get them into space, well, then they're more than in with a chance. So don't forget, last year they came to the RDS and did a job in Leinster quite convincingly um, in, in Dublin, uh, something that not a lot of teams can do. They are the current champions, and they're coming on the back of a very decent performance against Glasgow, but also Leinster are tying a little bit of baggage into this game. They've got the Champions Cup. Uh, final, which emotionally, physically, mentally is very draining, and you could see evidence of that last week. They have another huge encounter on their backs from last week, from Saturday in the RDS, with a packed house and all the pressure and emotion that went along with that. And you got to try and manage all the players this week and have them right and fresh and ready for the final hurrah this weekend. Um, so there's a lot for Leinster and Leo Cullen and his, his squad of coaching staff to try and manage there and get through. Um, that being said, I think if you can bring back a few. There are a few possibilities. Dan Levy could be back. Uh, Johnny Sexton could be back. Um, I don't think we'll see Henshaw or those. But if they can come back in and add to the squad, well, then it'll give them a boost. But I really and truly don't believe that Scarlets are going to come over here with any fear whatsoever. I really genuinely think um, this is about as 50-50 a battle as we've seen in a long, long time. Um, and they have a huge chance of turning Leinster over if Leinster don't get it right. Well, Reggie, let's hope that you're right and we're wrong. Thank you very much, Reggie. <laughs> Well, I won't be hoping that, Brian. I'll be hoping Leinster can pull uh, through and get the job done. Of course. A nice double needed. That's of what course. I want. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Cheers, Brian. Take it easy, other man. Time now to speak to Nigel Owens, the top rugby referee. How are you there, Nigel? I am here, Brian. How are you? Okay, just a short one today. One question. You've been in a ref camp in Australia, I understand. Yeah, uh, two weeks ago now. Yeah, we get together numerous times throughout the season. We have like mini camps during the Autumn Internationals during the Six Nations and then during the Rugby Championship. The mini camps tend to be sort of four, five, six hours long, a day camp. And then before the Autumn International starts, we get together at the Lensbury for a two-and-a-half-day camp. And then we do the same then uh, before the June tests and the Rugby Championship when we get together in Sydney. We did last year and this year for two-and-a-half days as well. And we just sort of... So what have you been doing? Well, we, we, we discussed uh, the previous tournament, so we, we would have probably discussed November and the Six Nations, which we did, uh, what we did well as a group of referees, what uh, we can improve on, a couple of talking points maybe from those tournaments or from matches in general, which then we discussed as a group of, you know, was this correct decision, is this correct outcome, um, how we can be better at getting the decisions correct and be consistent as a group all across the major tournaments which have been played all over the world. Um, so that's what we basically do then. So it's a very, very helpful camp in, in lining us, preparing us for the June and the Rugby Championship and also getting us you know, closer together as a group of consistent referees because we're all coming from various parts of the world from various tournaments but we're all refereeing from the same law book so um, that's what we, we do in the camp so it's, it's, it's very beneficial to, to us as a group of referees and I'm sure then it's, it's beneficial for the game as well because the better we perform as referees then, then hopefully that contributes to the games as well Can you tell us uh, one thing that you think was valuable above all one area one particular law or one particular situation? Yeah, we discussed things like the penalty try at length. Um, we discussed things, uh, the contact area, um, you know, how we can be more consistent uh, around that. Uh, we discussed things like uh, when a ruck is formed, when the ruck is over, then when there's player allowed to play the ball, like when the ball leaves the ruck. Um, so many things we, sort of, we, we, we covered, really, uh, in all we've discovered. Look, looked at the scrum. Um, things that we need to do better at the scrums, things we did well. Uh, and in all fairness, for example, the scrums are, are pretty positive at the moment. In, in general, the scrums are, are quite a positive part of the game at the moment. So we continue to work hard on that. Uh, for, for us, and you'll be glad to hear this, is a group of referees that we need to sort of um, stay focused and, and sort of pick up those crooked feeds that we that we miss from time to time. And, and you know, we, in all fairness, I, I think 
during the Six Nations, you did see quite a few free kicks, uh, more than you'd have seen in the previous tournament. So something that we are focused on, on referees and how we can work as a team of referees and our assistant referees in getting those blatant fees that from time to time we miss so we can get better at getting more of them and getting that better as well. So we, we cover pretty much a lot of areas in the game, really. Well, that's fascinating, Nigel. Uh, I'm sure we're all looking forward to seeing the benefits of it. Thank you very much. Pleasure as always. Time now to speak to a former colleague and uh, I hope a reasonable friend of mine, Damien Hopley, <laughs> the founder and group CEO of the Rugby Players Association, former Wasps and England player. Hello, Damien. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm OK, mate. I'm here with uh, Ben. Mental Health Awareness week last week and I know that's an area in which you've been very keen to try and make strides and there have been lots of uh, players come out very bravely in my opinion and talk quite candidly about the problems they've had whilst they were playing and certainly uh, very importantly after they stopped playing. How is How are the various RP initiatives on that going? Yeah we, well the team uh, have done a brilliant job in the lift the weight campaign that was um published last, uh, went out last February, and, and the interest and awareness went through the roof. Um, and I think any sportsman um, who's been lucky enough to play professional sport will, will go through this whole area of transition and, and try to understand that it can be a pretty daunting experience of, of going into the real world. And um, as a result of that, certainly the, the, the whole issue around depression, mental health, in alpha environments for both female, male, um, rugby people and athletes has been um, to the fore. So it's, I think, just trying to lift the lid on, on what that's all been about and trying to ensure that players don't feel alone. We have a confidential counselling service 24-7 through Cognacity and just trying to make players aware that there is support and help there for them if, if they need it because uh, it can be a very, as we all know, it can be a very lonely existence uh, being a professional uh, sportsman. Uh, professional athlete, so it's just important to, to provide the support services where necessary. Are we finally getting what, to me, is an absolutely essential message over, as you mentioned, alpha male professional sport, that it is not a sign of weakness to admit that you're struggling? Absolutely, and I think, you know, in many ways that we talk a lot about mental health, it's sort of hidden illness and, and, and uh, something you, you can't see. So even if we're helping teammates pick up on signs and, and, and signposting that um, players aren't okay and they do need to talk about certain things. And it's not just about sport, it's about life, isn't it? There are it human is, issues yeah. that affect all of us um, off the field as well as on it. So I think just having that, that uh, ability to sort of reach out and um, speak to either friends or indeed uh, you know, independent experts where I think most people feel sometimes a little bit more, uh, more at ease talking to someone who is a professional um, and then just being comfortable with the fact that they're not okay and that, that these things happen. So, um, it's, it, you know, we've got several um, examples of players, myself, you know, yourself, lots of players who've, who've sort of gone through the troubles and difficulties and, and it's just important that we, we share and talk about it and, and don't be af- afraid to talk. Hey, Damien, Ben here. Hope you're well. Hey, One of the things that, that players have often talked to me about and when they've struggled to articulate how they're feeling in their clubs are that they sometimes do get these the coaches that you know might tell you that you're okay to come in and have a chat and if you do that there's there's a door where you go in and there's another door that you leave the club afterwards Mm. is there any education around the coaches and and how they can have perhaps a better skills to be able to deal with with players that are going through this and to start to see that and understand how how they can have actually a very positive outlook for those players but they can also create some real negative damage if they do things wrong well i think there's such a nervousness isn't there, about admitting any weakness particularly you know in the playing and non-playing capacity is and, and and i think as we have all seen over the last couple of years the, the game is becoming increasingly um cutthroat in terms of contract renewals and players leaving and coaches leaving as well so it, it is becoming a, a, a lot more haphazard in that sense and, and I think you're absolutely right there is a real nervousness about players so you know, certainly around coach education and indeed club administrators and, and people off the field I think the fact that the mental health issue is, is really getting some great airtime now unfortunately due to incidents that, that have happened uh, both 
in rugby and other sports is a good thing. But I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the need to actually educate and upskill um, everyone in that really high-pressure environment, and as you well know, year on year, there's more and more pressure being heaped onto everyone in that performance element. So how do you actually find the appropriate uh, environment to actually um, be able to talk about maybe some um, mental health issues or fragilities that uh, could well impact on performance. Um, so I agree 100% that the more we can do to educate everyone, and particularly um, the, play, the, the people who the players answer to, I think is really important. Uh, Damien, the RPA Awards World uh, a couple of weeks ago, now these are always good evenings, they're big bashes and so on, um, but how much importance do you attach to them? What do you think their particular value is? Well, I guess there's twofold for us, Brian. One is um, we're celebrating the achievements on the field and it's the players who vote for their own player and young player of the year. So, you know, that's, that, for me, that's, that's the best accolade you can ever get when, when your peers are actually voting for you uh, in your sport. Um, but I think probably more importantly, it's about raising awareness and funds for our charity, Restart Rugby. And this year we had two outstanding individuals receiving the... the um, Blythe Award, which was named after Andy Blythe, who we all remember suffered a spinal injury um, back in 2001 and uh, defied medical advice and, and walked again. And this year we had uh, Dolly Weir, who's obviously going through a very public battle with motor neurons disease. And Ed Jackson, who himself um, uh, suffered a spinal injury, diving into the short, shallow end of a swimming pool and, and then incredibly climbed Mount Snowden just at the beginning of April. So that was as much about recognising courage in the face of adversity. I guess all the things that we know rugby to be about building character and the support of the rugby family. And uh, we, we, through the very uh, compelling powers of Martin Bayfield, we raised, raised a few quid in the auction as well, which goes to help all these players out who suffer injury, illness or hardship. So it's a, it's an absolutely fundamental part of everything we offer as an organisation. But also, I think for everyone there on the night to recognise um, Doddy, Ed, the, the winners of the awards themselves, men, women, seventh, fifteenth. We even recognise Ian Robertson, his 46 years of outstanding service to uh, to rugby commentary uh, in this country. So um, he was revered as a Scotsman on the night, which he was absolutely thrilled about. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, and it's an opportunity to. I think particularly for the players just to have a beer and enjoy, you know, the sort of the, the wind down, those not involved in the premiership uh, finale. Um, it's an opportunity for them to wind down and, and actually share some time together, which Brian, you and I used to do probably far too much when we played, <laughs> but uh, players these days don't have that luxury. So uh, it's, it's a great celebration and flagship for us. Yeah. I mean, thank you for taking the time. I know the end of season is a particularly busy time for you for various reasons. Um, good luck with everything this summer. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mauro. Hope to see you soon. Thank you. Ben, before we go, let's discuss uh, the book that you've put in front of me. Ben Ryan, Seven's Heaven, The Beautiful Chaos of Fiji's Olympic Dream. Now, those of us who saw Fiji play and saw the delight that it brought not only to the team, but we know to the wider uh, island of Fiji, can only have a small insight into what effect that triumph had. You were there, you saw it. Can you put it into words? <laughs> Will you put it into words? Can you try, I'll, I'll try, I'll try to. Well, I think that hopefully what what the book's tried to do and, and uh, you know, it was it says my name on the front, Ben Ryan, but, you know, it's ghostwritten and Tom Fordyce um, wrote the book with me and has spent the last year going through all of it and the journey and a bit like the way the boys play, it's, it's the book, the journey's in Technicolor. There's lots of different things that happened in that journey personally for me and then for the team. And it, there was a lot of serendipity about me going to Fiji um, and the way I want to coach and the way that they like to play. It, it worked out well, but um, we had to really get to the lowest point and I joined the team at the lowest point for them with, with bankruptcy and no funding and no sponsors and world rugby investigating them. And, you know, the, the, the president of the rugby union was a dictator and my line manager was a convicted murderer. And, and one of our best player had his... Just um, a few problems then. Really. Yeah, that was week one. <laughs> um, but, you know, then positive is it's a blank page. You, you, there, and there was nothing that was going well, except when you get on the field and you're training with the boys and there's so much just joy playing the game that it's a, almost a spiritual occasion when you're on the field training. 
But Benny, I mean, you mentioned that, and, and having met you several times and discussed various topics uh, with you, what comes through to me is that you seem to have developed a set of values, a set of coaching values, which um, you're quite confident in, uh, which you believe are applicable and helpful. How have you brought yourself round to forming uh, those things? Because sometimes mm. they can be technical, mm. sometimes they can be emotional, sometimes they can be spiritual or a combination. So how's it, how have they played out for you? So the foundations that I set everything on um, is to get the best out of everybody, to, to get them to be the best version of themselves, to create an environment that gives them security and safety and purpose and belief and all these various that's things. Quite a Buddhist, that's almost a Buddhist philosophy, isn't it? Well, well it's a little bit of that. And I'm not afraid to say that, you know, I'm not, you know, anyone sees me in the high street, no one's going to go, oh, he played rugby. That's not, that's not the view of, of me. And it's not also, I, I, I don't think, um, you know, I, I, do, I do it the other way around to how lots of people do it. They'll get people to, to fill in these psychological profiles and say, this is how this bloke operates, but, and this is how you've got to react to him. And actually, if you create an environment where everyone feels that they've got, that they, they feel safe in it um, m mentally uh, to give their very best and they can say what they feel to me and know that I'm going to treat them with absolute respect and, and I'm not going to use it to, against them. It's all for the greater good. And if my end philosophy is to make myself redundant, to create a program where everybody knows what they're doing, they don't need the head coach, then if that's your end goal, then all your processes work towards empowering players and creating a simple framework. So simple is not that easy to create sometimes, but um, it's all based around people. Yeah, well, that, that's a point uh, really essentially I wanted to, to make and to go on to because I've been to lots of management seminars and so on, very process-driven, and I've always asked the same question. I've said, you are in a business whose main assets are people, and that is absolutely sport. If you don't have, which it seems to me you don't have, any emotional intelligence, how on earth are you going to actually deal with these? Because you can get processes in line, which will help people undoubtedly, but the essential part of making them perform is not the environment they're in, in a technical or a logistical sense. If they're not happy emotionally, and that's within themselves as a group, then you simply will not get the best out of them. So what are you doing to cope with what I consider and see as a gap in emotional emotional intelligence. Yeah, that and that's um, that that shines shines through a lot. That it is about getting the best out of people. And I've come across the best technical coaches in the world, and guys that you sit down and they'll tell you tactically everything that that that's possible. But if they can't manage people, then everything else falls apart. And and it is you know. You, when you split things into what your job is as a head coach to lead, to manage and to coach, it's actually all about the people. And if you get the best out of that, then everything else can flourish from there. And, you know, I, I learned lots of things the hard way as well and talk about it in my book about my best mate, Noel, where I felt I just let him down when I was younger and what, didn't what, give him... What do him... you mean? You have to explain that. Well, he, you know, we grew up together and um, uh, he spent a lot of time with my family. He had come across from Africa and um, to get an education and had a guardian that um, he didn't spend much time at and we were at a school where um, uh, it was me and him a, a lot and we ended up having a, a big argument over a few things that I still don't know about. And he went one way, I went the other. He, he unfortunately got himself into trouble. He had a, an armed robbery. He went to prison for that when he was... Um, 17 or 18 and at the time I just felt I couldn't help him and off he went on that I think there were other stuff going on that the book I think if you if you read the book between the lines you can see that Noel had some other fairly dark things that were happening to him um, and like well you know my school at my my school that I went to when I was younger you know there were people that went to prison for for child abuse um, and you know you've got to all of this affects affects you when you're growing up. Um, you know, I don't, you know, certainly... Well, unfortunately, I just wanted to tell you, unfortunately, I am intimately... Um, yes, I'm aware. ...knowledge, you know, of that. And, yeah. I, and you know, I will say to you this, things that happen to you in your formative years are more powerful than things that happen in your adult life. I'm not dismissing uh, the abuse that people do suffer in adult life, but uh, when you're... 
of a particularly young age and you're more vulnerable, then the effects are more uh, intense, I think, and they, they, they last longer. And I just say from a comfort point of view, I'm not sure there's much you could have done at the time because one of the good things about the way that mental health issues have developed, the way that people are now willing to report bullying and abuse is that people now feel able to do that. If your friend Noel didn't feel able to tell anyone, and that included you, because he didn't think it would make a difference or he didn't think it would have been believed, then he wouldn't have done so. But that had nothing to do with any deficiencies in you, uh, and nothing to do with the way that you could or didn't or did you know, relate to him. No, no I mean, yeah... It brings up lots of things, doesn't it, when, when, when we talk about all of this and um, it certainly made me look at things differently, look at my attachments and um, all the stuff that, that, that goes on and uh, it still doesn't stop you at the time thinking that you could have done more and, you know, when you're older and you can unpack it, you, you can look back and go, there just wasn't anything I could do. But um, it still drove a lot of my philosophy and, and when I, I want to, you want to get the best out of people, you want to help them reach their potential. And you also know that everybody's different. Everybody has different things that are, are going to help them achieve their goals. And, um, and it's, it's very important to, to put that first in how you treat people and, ha and show respect to them. And I wanted to put it in the book because it was part of me and, um, and it is what it is really. And, and we talked about this a bit offline. If I had another couple of months, I would have had another chapter about what happens once you finish all of this and you have the adulation of Olympics um, and, f you know, I, 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 te I te talk openly about the breakdown of my marriage um, and other things that happened as a result of leaving. And they're all important issues. And, you know, Damon talked about it. And it's great that we, we can, we can um, have all these various things that are happening now to try to air this and talk about this so that um, people can feel valued and can, um, can deal with the stuff that they've got to go through. Did you manage to get to this stage at least, though? When it's all written down, and because of the permanence of print, whatever is said disappears in the ether. Things that are written and therefore stay, for whatever reason, seem to be more permanent, more powerful. When it's all put down like this in one particular tome, have you been able to sit back and say, you know what, if I went tomorrow, I've had an extraordinary time though. Yeah, Brian, um, you know, a lot of when we were when putting this together and Tom was talking to me, you know, I would leave as though there was small weights being lifted from me. It felt like therapy with Tom, to be honest with you. Um, and then the final edition came through. Yeah, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I've been as honest as I can. There's stuff that happened afterwards and that might be another book in the future. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's been cathartic and I hope people can take little parts of this book that they can relate to their own life and also realise that, you know, you can try, treat people with kindness and respect and be nice to people. And as Fijian team showed, you can also be very ruthless and very successful on the field. They, 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 you, don't have, you don't have to be isolated in, in those two things. Well, just as a reminder, the book is called 7-7, Seven Seven, The Beautiful Chaos of Fiji's Olympic Dream with Ben Ryan and Tom Fordyce, and it's published by Weidenfield and Nicholson, and available, as they say, in all good bookshops. That's all we have time for on this week's Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you very much to my co-host, Ben Ryan, fascinating as usual, and to my producer, as usual again, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast. It's absolutely free, and leave a review. We'll be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.